Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, and then reading on to chapter 3, verse 7. Esther 2, beginning at verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. When the inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. We treat it as a holy thing, and it is our desire to not only understand it, but live in terms of it. I pray that as we continue to worship you by submitting to your word, that uh, you would uh, anoint our minds, our hearts, our wills, capture us to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> For the Jews throughout the empire, this was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I think probably from day to day, it depended on which side of the bed you got up as to which one you focused on. Uh, there were a lot of neat things that had happened. Uh, where we're picking up the story, it's 311 B.C., and by this time, the empire has become fairly stable. There were a lot of frightening things that had happened in the, in the early years, but it had become fairly stable. Uh, R.J. Rushdoony in his history notes points out that uh, Media and Persia were really the only nations uh, in which the king was subject to his own laws and in which he could not overturn his own decrees. And so it put a, a certain degree of limits upon the tyranny of... Um, of the king, and it made the, the kingdom somewhat more stable. There was still plenty of tyranny uh, to go around, and uh, yet I think the people could be thankful for small things that they uh, faced. Um, he says that they were more prosperous than under Babylon. They lived more safely. 
uh, well-protected, they had good roads, administered regions, higher degree of justice than perhaps they had had under Babylon, even though really they weren't free. Uh, there was still a lot of tyranny. And Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Haggai have all been prophesying by this time some incredible prophecies that must have stirred the hearts of the people. Neat things that he had predicted would be happening. He had predicted that there would be numerous people that would be coming back from Israel, uh, uh, coming back to Israel from the various reaches of the empire. And within just a few months of verse 18 of chapter 2, Ezra leaves once again to Israel with another large contingent of people who were uh, traveling with him. They had prophesied that other Jews would be sown among the nations and that there would be huge numbers of Gentiles who would become Jews. Huge numbers of Gentiles who would become Christians, as it, uh, as it were. And uh, they haven't seen that happen yet, but their hearts are stirred by the anticipation of this. We're going to see that occurring later on in this book. All three prophets prophesy the rebuilding of the temple, and Ezekiel uh, delves into that at great length, telling exactly the dimensions of the temple, uh, telling him what kind of sacrifices, the clothing of the priesthood, and how the prince is to relate to it and everything. They've got all the details. In fact, Jerusalem as a whole is supposed to be like a, a, a temple precincts, as it were. And then the priests having all kinds of territories around Jerusalem. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. He set these priests up in towns all around Jerusalem so that they would be nearby and present. Now, we already know just, uh, uh, just a couple of months earlier that the Jews are really disappointed. They get this temple built, and they said, man, this is nothing like the temple that we had in uh, under Solomon. And Haggai and Zechariah, uh, and actually Ezekiel was way before, but he prophesied about this as well. He says, uh, don't worry about that fact. This is actually going to be a far more glorious temple because this will be the temple in which, in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is poured down. And out of the east gate of that temple is going to be growing a, a stream of water that is going to bring healing to the whole world. And, of course, it's the stream of the Holy Spirit. Philip Morrow in his book points out uh, in, in great detail that is exactly where Pentecost happened. It was in one of the rooms of the temple. And out of that uh, temple, as the people left from every nation, there is this stream going into all of the nations of the Holy Spirit. And each one is a temple, right? And out of their innermost being is supposed to be flowing rivers of living water. So there's a lot of encouraging things. Darius has become much more pro-Jew and pro-freedom in Israel. First two years, boy, he put a lockdown on that nation and uh, seemed very anti-Jewish. But he has really softened in the last couple of years. So they're encouraged. But um, we also see that this is the worst of times. Things can change at a moment's notice. If your daughter can be abducted by this tyrant uh, without any uh, formalities, uh, what else can happen at a moment's notice? We see uh, in, in this chapter here that it doesn't matter how paranoid Darius has become, how careful he is. You know, he tries to keep anybody from being able to approach him because he's paranoid of getting assassinated. And there's a lot of intrigue going on. Here's Big Than and Teresh. There is bodyguards. They're stationed right outside his bedroom. Nobody can approach unless they go through these bodyguards. So somebody must have bribed them. And, uh, or something has happened where they are planning the assassination. By the way, his son Xerxes 
gets assassinated by his bodyguards in his own bedroom. So this is not just an idle uh, thing. This does happen in the ancient world. And so we've got conspiracy in chapter 2. We've got another form of conspiracy in chapter 3. Who in the world would have thought that Haman, of all people, would be elevated to the position of prime minister? Uh, as you read through the book, it becomes apparent that there's a lot of anti-Jewish feeling that has been growing. We're not told why this anti-Jewish feeling has uh, been developing. It may be envy. When you look at the amount of money that Haman promises to Darius that he would get from the plunder of the Jews, these Jews must have been fabulously rich. Uh, it's just an enormous sum of money uh, that would have been coming into Darius's uh, coffers. But you see, Ezekiel and Zechariah have also prophesied about the opposition, that there are going to be dark times before those good times uh, come. In fact, uh, they prophesy that these people are going to try to annihilate every man, woman, and child, and the tables would be reversed, and their enemies actually would be destroyed. That's all prophesied in both Ezekiel and uh, in uh, Zechariah. So it was the best of times, it was the worst of times happening side by side, and from day to day, you didn't know what was going to be happening. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, you have a hint of this coming conflict. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now, we've got two ironies that are being brought to the fore here. The first one, pretty obvious, Mordecai, who's just finished saving the king's life, who has been a very loyal subject to the king, he's ignored. Nobody even notices him. Whereas Haman, the, the new kid on the block, and the one who ought to be destroyed, he is being elevated to the second position in the empire, to the position of prime minister. And any Jew who read this, this would have grated on him. You know, here's a, an irony that uh, there's a reversal, uh, a reversal going on. Another irony is that the people whom God had declared perpetual war against, the Amalekites, are on the ascendancy. And Israel, whom God had commanded to never make peace with the Amalekites, they're falling. And it may be for the same reason that uh, this reversal happened in Exodus chapter 17 where the first conflict between Israel and the Amalekites happened. Back then, remember, when Moses raised his hands, uh, Israel prevailed. And when his hands grew weary, then Amalek prevailed. And remember that his brothers held up his hands on each side. It may be because of the prayerlessness now that the Amalekites are on the ascendancy. Israel is not. We're not told uh, why, uh, why that is, but there is another reversal. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the arguments back and forth on the meaning of Agagite, but I think the clearest uh, evidence and the strongest evidence is that, that uh, Haman was a descendant of the ancient king Agag and that Mordecai was a descendant of the ancient king Saul who was supposed to kill Agag. And um, let me just give you a quote from a commentary. Carrie A. Moore says, Regardless of its original meaning, now it clearly represents a nomen gentilicium, meaning a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. This is the view of Josephus, who rendered it Amalekitan, the view of the Talmud and the Targums, as well as most of the commentators who rightly view Haman as a descendant of the Amalekites, a people who frustrated Israel 
in Exodus 17, 8 through 16, whose downfall was predicted by Balaam and whose king Agag was slaughtered with many, but not all of the Amalekites. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is if you pick up a commentator, a commentary, there's at least two or three commentaries out there who have tried to link Agag with a region in media by the name of Agas. It's a different spelling. And I think this is uh, so central to the theme of the book that it's important that we at least settle this detail. The Jewish encyclopedia says, Agagite can only be interpreted here as synonymous with Amalekite. Compare Agag, king of the Amalekites, the foe of Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 8, 20, and 32, and Numbers, or with Numbers, 24, 7. In Numbers 24, 7, let me just add parenthetically, that was a passage that uh, called any leader of the Amalekites an Agagite, okay, Agag. Anyway, the... Um, uh, Jewish Encyclopedia goes on to say, Opert's attempt to connect the term Agagite with Agaz, a Median tribe mentioned by Sargon, cannot be taken seriously. And so already here in chapters 2 and 3, the author is setting up these two men as spiritual representatives of the great conflict between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And I think there is clearly demonic influence here. Why the genocide, you know? Uh, clearly a, a demonic, uh, there's a spiritual warfare going on, and I think this warfare went all the way back to the Malachites in Exodus chapter 17. I've hinted at that before. Uh, what happened is the Amalekites, they were not provoked at all. They weren't going through their territory. They weren't going to even conquer that, but they were nipping at their heels. They were killing off the young, the weak, the stragglers. Uh, they wanted to destroy everybody, and they finally gathered in their troops to try to make a war and that was the place where they were raising their hands. God finally declared war, and he said, this is his declaration. Because a hand was raised against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Because a hand was against the throne. Okay, so this was more than just the Amalekites fighting Israel. These were the Amalekites fighting against God's throne itself. And it hints that there was a, a demonic, a satanic element in here. And that's the reason for the desire to exterminate them. Now, some people think Mordecai's refusal to bow down was illegitimate. That, uh, you know, Jews were not forbidden to bow down and show homage to, to people and that this was ridiculous, he was endangering the people. But let me tell you something, if, Haman, if Mordecai had bowed down to Haman, he would have been flat out disobeying a direct order of the Lord. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, God had said, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Later in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul, King Saul, spares the life of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, God rebukes him. God says, your kingdom is taken from you. You can no longer be king of Israel. That's how seriously God took it. He lost a kingdom over this precise issue of failing to, um, uh, to destroy the Amalekites. Well, you can see Mordecai is in a pickle. 
he's in a fix here. This is not simply the issue of honoring a king. He was willing to bow down to the, the, the emperor Darius. Esther was willing to prostrate herself before Darius. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue here is between Haman and Mordecai. It's the issue of the Amalekite. And all he has to do by way of explanation to these people who are saying, why don't you bow down to, Morde to, to Haman? You've bowed down to everybody else. Why don't you bow down to Haman? All he has to do is explain is, I'm a Jew. Jews can't do that. He's an Amalekite. You know, any Jew who read this, I think in his mind, would have filled in the rest of the story and realized, okay, of course, a Jew cannot bow down uh, to this Agagite. Now, maybe in a later sermon, I'll try to show how the Amalekites were descendants of Magog, the son of Japheth, who was the son of Noah. So he was a Japhethite. And... Uh, how uh, the prophet Ezekiel prophesies of the warfare that's going to be going on in this, in, in this book um, and calling it the Battle of Gog and Magog. Gog being the ruler, Magog being the followers of this ruler, uh, Gog. Um, John Gill uh, and the James Jordan and other authors have pointed out that Gog and Agag are virtually identical in the, in the Hebrew and they mean the same thing. There's a, a vowel change but they uh, mean uh, approximately the uh, same thing, well, exactly the same thing. And uh, the name Haman occurs in that battle of Gog and Magog. In fact, one of the valleys is, uh, where the dead are buried is going to be called the Valley of Haman Gog, or the Haman Agag. You could uh, take it either way, Haman Gog. One of the cities is called Hamona. And so there's a lot of language, there's a lot of, uh, of interplay, I think, between this book and uh, the battle of, of Gog and Magog uh, earlier on. So the conflict in this book between the Amalekites and the Jews is a true symbol that prophetically foreshadows the new covenant conflict that, uh, that uh, God's people would enter into in the New Testament. And who's going to be the winner in the New Testament conflict? It's not going to be the Hamans, is it? This is going to be foreshadowing uh, how God is going to deal with his enemies. Now, that, in a nutshell, by the way, is the meaning of Purim, that uh, the Jews go from unbelief, they go to belief in the Lord. They are almost in disaster, going to be destroyed, but the Lord uses them to bring conversion to many Gentiles and blessing to the whole world. I think, in a nutshell, that's what Purim is uh, foreshadowing. Now, I'm going to deal with the conflict at a later date, but I do want you to at least see the author right away is setting up the actors who are going to be acting this out, some of the symbolism, and he's rooting it back in the Old Testament. And so even though there aren't very many symbols in this book, this is clearly one. This is one that is authorized. And my philosophy is you don't turn anything in the Scripture into symbols unless the Bible itself authorizes it to be a symbol. So these two people stand as spiritual representatives. But Haman and Mordecai are also juxtaposed, put back to back like this so that it's obvious they are standing as, as uh, civil magistrates to be avoided or to be imitated. Mordecai stands as a statesman to be imitated. Now, a statesman is not just a person who is skilled in the art of uh, ruling, you know, a, a nation and, and, and civil management. But he, he is that, but it's also a person who does so with integrity and he does so without um, uh, hidden agendas. In verse 22, 
uh, probably would have been hard for Mordecai to be enthusiastic about defending this king Darius, uh, although there's question on that, uh, that that different people have. But he knows that this will be in the best interests of his people. It'll be in the best interests of the empire. It'll be in the best interests of um, uh, the, the, the administration he's serving. But more than that, he knows it's the right thing to do. Because in the scripture, revolution is never justified. Revolution is never justified. By the way, the war for independence in America was not technically a revolution because it was civil magistrates fighting against other civil magistrates. But revolution uh, is always um, uh, something that the Scripture goes against. And so in this passage, even though it's tempting perhaps, uh, he seeks the welfare of the city by exposing this revolutionary principle. Chapter 10, verse 3 indicates that throughout his whole tenure, his habit had been to seek the welfare of his people. Let me read that for you. Chapter 10, verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, was great among the Jews, well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Now, there are three statesmanlike descriptions that you'll find in that passage. First, his Jewishness was not hidden from politics, okay? It was as a Jew that he served in the civil government here. Now, some people have felt that Mordecai, at least in chapter 2, had compromised his faith, had hidden his faith, and he'd asked Esther to, and that's a possible interpretation. Uh, it's one of three possible interpretations. And if that is true, then what has happened is that God is forcing him to not do so, to make that to be something that he highlights and that he puts up in the front. Uh, but again, whatever interpretation from chapter 3 and onward, he is known as Mordecai the Jew. He's known to everybody as that. His, um, his Christianity, see, the word Jew was not used in an ethnic sense in this book because Gentiles became Jews. It's used in a religious sense. And Mordecai, from this point on, has his Christianity affecting what he does in the civil government. And it affects it so much he could lose his life. Okay, that's the degree to which, uh, w which it affects what he, uh, what he was uh, doing. A lot of Christians nowadays, in their desire to get ahead politically, have said, oh, don't worry, my Christianity is not going to affect my politics. I keep my Christianity and my politics separate. That's schizophrenic, you know. We can't do that. We're either using Christianity to guide our principles or some other religion. There is no neutrality. We're either for him or we're against him. And Christ said that we must have our Christianity, our principles, affecting absolutely everything that we do. Everything we do, we need to do to his uh, glory. Now, the second thing that we see here, not just uh, uh, that his Christianity is connected with what he does, but the second thing is that he is seeking the good of his nation. He's seeking their peace. Jeremiah commands the exiles... Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. 1 Timothy 2 commands exactly the same thing. Not revolution, but peace. And you know what? The re reformers said that tyranny is better than anarchy. Anarchy is just another form of tyranny, but it's a far worse form of tyranny. Now, we don't want tyranny forever. You know, we want the biblical principles 
uh, to be established, but tyranny is worse than, I mean, tyranny is better than anarchy. And so he is seeking the welfare of his country, even in that action there. Now, the third thing we see in Mordecai is that he stands for principle, even if it means that he could lose his job. Uh, many politicians today are not statesmen who are willing to take unpopular stance. They're people who, you know, lick their finger and see which way the wind is blowing, and boy, they'll change their decisions as soon as they see the wind of popularity going in a different direction. And let me tell you something, it is hard not to do that because the peer pressure is enormous in Washington, D.C. And don't be pointing the finger there because I think any of us can succumb to, to peer pressure. But it's not a statesman who does that. And I should point out, too, that there have been statesmen on both sides of the aisle in Congress who have taken stands that are maybe sometimes minority stands where everybody's against them. Sometimes they've prevailed, sometimes they have not. But they've been able to be respected because they were statesmen rather than operating in terms of their own, their own interests. Mordecai knows he can lose his job. Actually, it's more than that. He knows he can lose his life. Uh, and yet he knows the penalty that Saul, his ancestor, received on this same issue. And he says, I need to take the risk and I need to do what is right. And he does so. Now, we're not going to look at it today, but in your outlines, I point out that in chapters 8 and 9, he's promoting God's laws as well. And I think that needs to be near and dear to our hearts, especially to a Christian politician's hearts. God's law needs to be advanced wherever we can. Now, that's Mordecai the statesman, okay? In stark contrast to Mordecai the statesman, we've got Haman, the consummate politician. He's not seeking the welfare of the people that he's ru ruling. He's using those people to advance his own interests. In fact, he's not just using the people, he's using King Darius. He fools King Darius. He's using the government to advance his own agendas, his personal vendettas. And I sometimes have wondered in the past if all politicians are that way. I know it's not true. But there are fewer and fewer people, it seems to me, who see themselves as servants, servants of the people, public servants. Public office many times is a self-serving office. Anyway, it gets worse. Not only is he consumed with his own welfare, his own advancement, he treats life as cheap. You know, in this chapter, chapter 3, he's willing to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of Jews, kill them all off, he says. He's willing to do that. And look at verse 15 at the very end. What, what does he do after he makes this decision and it's settled, they're all going to be killed? It says, so the king and Haman sat down to drink. Man, talk about a cavalier attitude toward life. And we look at that and we stomp our feet and we say, you know, bad on them. And yet, this is an attitude that's all throughout America and elsewhere. You know, when abortions are performed, statistics indicate that almost always it's just for convenience. The child's an inconvenience, you know. It's uh, going to keep us from pursuing our goals. Uh, or it's a financial uh, problem or something like that. A cavalier attitude toward life so that we can pursue our own personal agendas. Most of the wars that have been declared in the last century, according to many people, are wars that were actually just to advance the political desires of politicians. had nothing to do with justice. Uh, it's not just Sudan that has been treating life cavalierly just so that they can have this oil. I think that this is part and parcel of humanism until God's grace changes them, changes their lives. Now, we may have more to say about politics in the future, but I want to spend some time on contrasting their characters. And I think this is very instructive in our lives. Scripture says pride goes before a fall. Okay, pride goes before a fall. 
And there's all kinds of lessons into here and how it was that he ended up falling. It's the same ways that we end up falling in our lives as well. First of all, we see that Haman is self-seeking. Now, we're not told how he climbs the social ladder so quickly. He does so, and he is still intent on climbing higher in this chapter. He has everything going for him in verse 1, but because of his constant desire for more, he can't stand to see even one person, Mordecai, that's not respecting him, that is not bowing down to him in verse 2. See, envy is that way. Envy could have enormous amounts of things, and yet it can't enjoy those things if it sees something else that it wants. One of the scriptures that um, we made our children memorize and we drilled into their heads when they were younger is envy rots the bones. And we tell our kids, now look at all the things you're not enjoying now because you're envying what he has. You've got all kinds of blessings, but it feels miserable inside, doesn't it? Scripture says it's rotting your bones. Don't your bones feel miserable and rotten right now? And we go through, and, and they are miserable. But that's the way of this sinful thing of envy in our lives. This man should have been the happiest man in the world. He's on top of the pyramid. He has absolutely everything. But is he happy? No. He's absolutely miserable because somebody is not giving him what he wants. Destroy envy before it destroys you. Envy is a destructive force. It is a destructive force. We need to get it out of our lives. The twin enemy of the soul is pride. Uh, we see Haman constantly feeding his pride, you know, and uh, stroking his pride. He loves to be bowed down to. And the first thing that comes to his mind in chapter 6, you know, when the king's wanting to honor Mordecai, but Haman doesn't know that, and the king says, well, what's, what's a, a way that I could honor a person I'm pleased to honor? Mordecai says, boy, he, I bet you he's thinking about me. So that's pride at work right there. And he thinks, you know, I'd like more than what I have right now. I'd like to be king for a day. In fact, I want to wear the king's robe. I want to ride on his horse. And uh, I want to have his servants going in front of me to see what it would feel like. Pride is never satisfied just as envy is never satisfied. And so that's what he asks for himself. And I think this is so true of human nature. Um, you know, we, we just feel so good when people notice us and respect us. Um, Boy, does he look sharp today. And we just, boy, straighten up and feel real, real good. Uh, or uh, pride uh, really enjoys it when uh, we're able to advance in some way or when we can take credit for something. I mean, even little tiny children. I did it myself, you know. And uh, you can see the little inklings of this pride growing up. But what's happening with Haman is he's feeding his pride and it's becoming a big monster. And let me tell you something, the bigger pride gets, the easier, easier of a target it is. The easier it's hurt, right? And that's what happens to Haman. He is so easily hurt. You know, he has everything and all it takes is one little thing to make him absolutely miserable. What's the next sin that is uh, manifested here after his hurt feelings? It's anger. Verse 5 uh, says, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath, was filled with wrath. Anger is most frequently manifested when we feel slighted, isn't it? And James warns us, the wrath of man does not produce 
the righteousness of God. And actually, if you study anger, it doesn't even produce the sinful desires that they, they want to accomplish. What it does is it messes with your head. It makes you so that you don't think straight and you end up falling just like Haman fall, fell. So here's three sins that are at the root of this incredible fall that, 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 that Haman uh, has. Um, Haman, in this case, his anger causes him to nurse his feelings, his hurt feelings, to seek revenge, and then as the chapters tick by, to become more and more bitter. Now, does that bitterness make him feel better? No, not at all. In chapter 5, honor upon honor has been conferred upon him, but he says here, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Now, you know, there's been numerous movies that have even used this as the basis for their plot that some person has it all and yet he feels slighted, he becomes bitter, and in his attempt to get revenge, he undoes himself and he becomes unseated. He loses everything just like Haman lost everything. And so we recognize it enough to even make movies about it. We can see it in other people. We shake our heads and yet we do it all the time ourselves. See, this is part of our human heart. That's why we need salvation. That's why we need God's grace. Unless Jesus comes in and he changes our hearts from the inside out, we are going to be destroyed. We need a savior. See, this is the thing that breaks marriages apart. This is the thing that makes people hate their jobs. It causes people to leave churches, to separate friends. Uh, if we do not conquer these things, these things will conquer us. God's way is so much better. God calls us to leave vengeance business in his hand. Now, he doesn't say we can't pray for it, but he says, boy, oh boy, don't let that bitterness grip your heart. Leave vengeance in God's hands. Instead, God says, I want you to bless those who curse you. I want you to do good to those who have done bad things to you. And uh, it's for our own good that we do that as much as it is for the enemy. Now, Mordecai in this book demonstrates a servant's heart that has these characteristics. The author says that he's, first of all, concerned about his daughter's welfare, chapter 2, verse 11. Now, that doesn't prove a lot because even unbelievers are concerned about, uh, you know, their own families. But he goes beyond this. He's a faithful magistrate, chapter 2, verse 21. And I think one of the reasons he includes those last few verses in that chapter, he does set up something for later on, but he immediately juxtaposes it with Haman. I think he is trying to indicate as well that the reason Mordecai is not bowing down to Haman has nothing whatsoever to do with his attitudes to Darius. He's faithful to Darius. He serves Darius. He defends Darius. The only problem that he has right here is that God does not allow him to honor, uh, honor, honor Haman. And so I think he puts that in there to say, no, he's a faithful magistrate. He's not self-seeking. Chapter 10, verse 3 shows he earned the respect of his countrymen. He sought their good and their welfare. And again, it wasn't his own good, his own uh, advancement that was uppermost in his mind. He's got a servant's heart. Now, if he had been self-seeking like Haman was, then I think he would have bowed down to Haman just in order to advance. Oh, yeah, I'll do nasty thing of bowing down to this person, but just wait till I get advanced above him, you know. Uh, I think if he was self-seeking, he would have, he would have uh, tried to get into his good graces. In verses 2 through 4, in fact, let's read that, he's willing to lose his r life rather than to compromise his principles. Chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate 
bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate say, Mordecai, why king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. So he is not worn down by this daily pressure, the nagging at him, the intimidation. He is not uh, swayed from his principle even by the wrath and the anger of verse 5. And let me tell you something. Doing the right thing is never popular. Well, I shouldn't say it's never popular. It's rarely popular. You know, usually, you know, if you, if you make a tough moral stand, the person doesn't come up to you and say, well, thank you, Ken Cope, for taking that tough moral stand and getting us all in hot water. You know, <laughs> unless, unless it's sarcastic, then they'll say that maybe. But uh, normally what happens is you take a tough moral stand and even your friends many times will misinterpret it and they'll, they'll, they'll really get on your case. What's the matter with you? It's just a tiny little compromise. I mean, you bow to everybody else. Why can't you bow to this person? Come on, you're making a bigger deal about this than it really is, right? Uh, there's constant pressure from people to, to do the compromise and, and it's a lonely thing to be a leader who, who is making... Uh, the right decisions. In fact, many times you're going to be attacked. People will say you're a proud person or they'll say that uh, you've got rebellion or whatever. And so Mordecai is in a very difficult situation, a very lonely situation. Uh, statesmen who stand by principle rather than seeking their own comfort and welfare are rare, but they are needed. And we need to train up our children, men, women, and children who, are, who have the moral guts and have the moral character to stand strong even if everybody else is against them. I think of Athanasius. He was arguing, you know, in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity for the orthodox position, and it seemed like everybody was abandoning him. One of his friends told him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. Uh, and he says, well, then Athanasius is against the world. And that's where the phrase contramundum came from. Uh, he said, it doesn't matter. If you're holding to the right position, it does not matter how many people are against you. So here's the admonition that I have. Young men, don't seek to be a husband unless you've already developed the moral character, the fiber that's going to enable you to make the right decision even when everybody's opposed to you. Do not seek leadership in church. Do not seek leadership in the state unless you've got the moral courage to take the stands and face the loneliness that those stands are going to give to you of making the right decision. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. In fact, I think some people who go on to Congress, they're Christians, they stand for the right principle. And, you know, I, I, I've talked to my family about this. You just know they're going to be a failure because you can see they do not have the moral fiber to take the stands and stick with those stands when the enormous peer pressure comes against them. We've got to have it before we go into leadership. So he's not self-seeking. But secondly, Mordecai actually crucifies his pride. He did not seek honor. Twice in this chapter, it emphasizes the fact he told Esther not to reveal her family or kin. She's a descendant of King Saul, and in order to protect herself, it would have been very easily to say, well, you can't treat me this way. I'm a child of a king. You know, I've got royal blood in me. 
Uh, don't treat me like a commoner. And Mordecai says, no, not, don't do that. Mordecai reveals he's a Jew, but he does not reveal that he is a descendant of King Saul, that he's got royal blood. In fact, even when he writes this book, it's interesting, the name Saul does not appear. He mentions Kish, Saul's father. He mentions Shimei, Saul's son, but he doesn't mention Saul because that is something in which he could boast in terms of the flesh. The only thing he wants to boast in is the grace of God, what God's grace has wrought uh, within him. Okay, second, as has already been seen in verses 2 through 4, he doesn't seek advancement in exchange for compromise. And it's such a stark contrast to the, to the pride of Haman. And I don't think that could be coincidental. Look at chapter 6. Why don't you turn to chapter 6 and verses 11 through 12. <clears throat> so Haman, this is at the king's command, and I'm sure this would have been awful for Haman. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. You almost get the impression there that for Mordecai, he didn't, he didn't care to be in the limelight, in the spotlight. You know, he didn't stay there and just revel, you know, and bask in the glory that he's just been in. No, as soon as he gets off the horse, he's back to work, back to business as usual. It wasn't that big a deal. I think he was crucifying his his pride. He knew the dangers of uh, pride within. And um, uh, previously, he handles his humiliation. How? Not by, not by self-pity parties, but by being faithful. Here, he handles his glory, not by basking it, by being faithful. And so it's crucifying pride. Then point D, even later in the story, he seeks the welfare of his people rather than his own advancement or security. In other words, his elevation was not squandered for his own interests. It was used as a steward for others. Now, the third contrast, and we'll just be brief on this, is we do not see Mordecai nursing his feelings or his hurt. When, when Esther is taken from him in a shotgun wedding and not even a, a wedding up high. She's probably going to end up being just a concubine. He could very easily have become a bitter old man by dwelling on this and brooding over it and nursing it. Uh, it would have been very easy to be consumed by a hatred toward Darius. And when Big Fan and Teresh come along, and they're angry with the king for him to say, yeah, you've got good reason to be angry, and I'm just as glad, good riddance to the king, you know, I'm not going to do anything on his behalf. Uh, in fact, one author uh, mentions that many people are puzzled, why in the world would Big Than and Teresh say anything in front of Mordecai? Well, this author says it's probably because Mordecai had been hurt and everybody could see that he was hurt. He was probably crying as his daughter was taken away. He maybe had no, uh, you know, no love for this king at that point, And they felt perfectly safe talking about these things in front of him. We're not told, but uh, that's the way he approaches it. So he's got he's hurt. He's got reason to nurse those bad feelings. And then the second gathering of virgins in chapter two, verse 19, that's like pouring salt into the wound, adding insult to injury. Yes, there's consolation that she's queen instead of some uh, concubine, 
But she's already queen. What's he bringing all of these other women? It's like adding insult to injury. Okay, so Mordecai could have been bitter, but he does not for a moment give in to those hurt feelings of revenge. Instead, he blesses the one who has abused him. He does good to the one who has done wrong to him. He heaps coals of fire upon Darius's head. Now, in conclusion, if you have acted more like Haman than like Mordecai, I want to encourage you to think about the end results of each of those people. It is worthwhile doing the right thing, even though it is tough. Uh, though men can do all kinds of evil against you, only you allow them to conquer your spirit. See, they can harm your body, they can take your money, they can take your house, they can take everything, but only you can allow them to control your spirit. And unfortunately, that's exactly what many people have done as uh, they have brooded over these things and they've wallowed in their self-pity and they've been filled with anger and hatred and bitterness, what has happened is their enemies have won. Their enemies have not only taken everything outward, they've taken their spirit and they've made this person miserable. Only you can allow them to do that. Some of you have jobs that are similar to what Mordecai was in. You've taken big risks. You've uh, pounded the pavement. You've worked yourself to the bone on behalf of these people. And like Mordecai, you're ignored. You're not advanced. And some new whippersnapper comes in and, uh, you know, he's hardly done anything and he's advanced above you. And you have a tendency within yourself to feel this is awful. You know, this is just not uh, justice and to begin to get bitter over that. Well, Scripture says you need to get rid of it. You need to get rid of any sense of bitterness or envy or you'll become like Haman. And let me give you some steps that you can do on that. You can fill in the blanks there. The first step is to trust God's sovereignty implicitly. God controls everything, and you need to trust Him that this situation is working together for your good. Now, I, I, we won't have time to get into verse 7, the casting of the lot. You know, it's the beginning of the year, and He keeps casting and casting to find His lucky day, and it's not till the end of the year that He finds His lucky day. Well, God has to do that because this has got to fit His prophetic pattern. It's got to fit number of different things. God is in control of even the dice. And we need to have the, the knowledge that even the ridiculous things of life, the seamy side of life, God's in control of that, enabling, overruling it, enabling it to work together uh, for my good. And I think this is what enabled Joseph to go through the misery... very easy when other people are unfaithful and they're bad against us for us to become uh, uh, disheartened about our job and to become unfaithful in it. Then we're adding our sin to their sin. So be faithful. Thirdly, bless those who have done evil to you. Okay? Do good to them. Now, this is complicated by the fact here that both Darius and Haman have done bad to him. And Darius, he can bless and he does so. Haman, he can't because God has commanded him not to, to bless him. So just take Haman out of the picture, okay? Because uh, there is a unique situation that is there. But the ordinary situation that we need to follow is his relationship uh, to Darius. Mordecai could have been very, very bitter if he had not handed over to the Lord the fact that God handles injustices. You know, every night he could have been wondering... You know, is that uncircumcised king sleeping with my daughter and, and, and just gone crazy over it. It could have been something that would have been very frustrating to him. But Mordecai knows he can't change the king. 
Only God can change the king. Some people believe Darius actually is converted at, at this point because of some of his actions. I'm, I'm skeptical. But uh, there is some evidence in, in the book of Ezra that they go in that direction. Certainly, God has controlled him in terms of taking his opposition to the Israelites to being very pro-Jew. Here, I think he's totally fooled. He's blindsided. But the point that I want to give here, here's an exercise you can give. Pray phrase by phrase through the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, asking God to conquer your heart and to give you that kind of self-giving love to your enemy. And pray phrase by phrase through Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, which is the chapter on how not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And it admonishes us to bless, pray that God would bless and advance. You know, you've got somebody in your work that's just a scoundrel. You just say, Lord, I pray that you would bless this guy. Give him a raise. And Lord, uh, uh, elevate him. And uh, I pray that you would convert him because it would be a whole lot nicer, you know, if he's blessed and converted. But in any case, bless him. And you're going to find your heart resisting that. Your heart's going to hate it. Why? Because our heart has a similar kind of a nature to their heart unless it is conquered by God's grace. And what we need to do, you say, that's impossible. I could never do that. In yourself, it is impossible. God's spirit can enable you to do it. So pray. And say, Lord, by faith, I'm doing this because your word has called me to bless those who curse me. Bless and do not curse. And so I'm playing that you would bless them, elevate them. And what you're going to find is that you're going to find that bitterness seeping out of your heart. It's not going to flow any longer. And you're going to find they don't control you anymore. They don't even rouse up those feelings of hatred and bitterness within your heart. Instead, you're going to have a love that seeks to pray for them, seeks to win them. So that's the third step. And then finally, thank God that he rewards the righteous and rejoice. He's working all things together for our good. That's a major theme in the book. So thank God that he's in control and rejoice in his provision. Now, there are other steps that can be taken to avoid bitterness of spirit. In fact, I gave a whole sermon uh, dealing with that subject and uh, an outline that goes with it that you can, you can borrow. Actually, you can't borrow it right now because I gave out my original, it looks like. If any of you has a copy of my tape, and it was delivered at Trinity, um, uh, Don't Get Eaten Up by Bitterness is the name of the tape. Please, lend me your copy so we can make a new master. <laughs> and uh, there are several people who have asked for that tape, and I've not been able to find it. So if you have it, um, uh, before you listen to it, uh, let me make a copy, and uh, then we'll, we'll get it back to you. But let me just give you one last, one last application. Have you ever thought why it is so hard and why so few people have the moral courage to make the right decision when you're in a pressure moment like Mordecai is going through? And maybe you wonder why you don't make the right decisions. Afterwards, you're kicking yourself like, ah, and every time a pressure situation comes up, I make the wrong decision. I think one of the reasons is, well, there's three reasons. I think it's because usually the right decision is not the popular decision. It's not an easy decision. And thirdly, you're tempted to think it's not an important decision. Because I tell you, when the pressure comes on, it's like, ooh, the importance of that seems to diminish as the importance of your self-preservation increases. And, uh, and I think we need to deal with those issues. We, we tend to do it because it's not popular, it's not easy, and... 
our heart is increasingly saying it's not important. And so I want to just quickly end with how do we gain this heart of moral courage? There are other steps that could be taken, but I only see two in the life of Mordecai, so I'll stick to these two. First of all, moral courage has the attitude that I don't have to survive for this to be the right decision. Okay, I don't have to survive for this to be the right decision. If you can come to the place where you have given everything to the Lord, you know, you know what the hardest thing for me to give to the Lord was not my life or other things. It was my library and all of the stuff I've written. And when I came to the place, I said, Lord, you can take my library, you can take my tapes, you can take my, you can take everything. Take my health. Oh, yeah, another thing was thinking of going senile. I said, Lord, if you want me to go senile and you'll be better glorified with that, take that. I've put all on the altar. Uh, I'm willing to die for you. And that's, I think, what Mordecai was willing to do. If God will be more glorified by taking me out, Lord, I want you to be glorified. If God will be more glorified by uh, me uh, being diminished in the eyes of the world, Lord, take it away. I want you to be glorified. For this to be the right decision, I don't have to survive. I think that's an essential step for you to have the kind of moral courage that you need to have to be willing to say with Esther later on in the book, I'm going to make the right decision. And if I perish, I perish. You know, if I lose my wife, if I lose my husband, if I lose respect in the community, if I perish, I perish. Lord, it's all on the altar. The second uh, step, the first one is being sold out to God. The second ingredient is knowing the presence and the power of God in your life. Now, just because Mordecai the prophet had been hearing regularly from God in terms of the writing of the scriptures didn't mean that he always experienced God's presence and power. David didn't always experience it. He cried out to the Lord, Lord, where are you? But because he knew God and he had tasted and known that the Lord is good, it caused him to continually seek God's favor more than man's favor. It made him more fearful of offending God than of offending man. And it was that sense of his presence that he had had from time to time that sustained him, I think, in this battle. And so I urge you, I urge you to imitate Mordecai, a man of moral courage, who was not overcome by evil, but overcame evil with good. Amen.